0: It is Tuesday, April the 11th, 2023. Welcoming everybody to another episode of Tone in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. It is pitching discussions each and every week. We do it with the five-time World Series champion, David Cohn, the research maven, James Smythe, myself, Justin Shackle, producer Dan Rourke is with us as well. And guys, over the course of us doing this podcast, now 84 episodes deep here, whenever someone comes up to me and says, hey, Really enjoy the podcast. They always talk about specific episodes. They mentioned two in particular. The one we had with Greg Maddox. The other we had with Tom Glavin. And this week, we kind of complete the puzzle from the glory days of the Atlanta Braves because we have John Smoltz on the show. The, the Hall of Fame pitcher and the current Fox Sports analyst stopped by to uh, talk with us about pitching and everything else that's happening in the game today. Pretty exciting as we uh, we get the big three. All in all, we complete this puzzle.
1: It's remarkable. And the more you look at that run that the Braves had, even though they only have one World Series title in 95, the run of of championship banners, you know, division banners, uh, the National League East they owned forever, um, and whatever division they were in before realignment, they were owning. So, yeah, those three guys will forever be compared in history to some of the best ever. And rightly so. It's, it's so rare to get three Hall of Famers like that all together when they were at a young age. They came up. They learned the game together. They thrived together. Just a remarkable story of three great pitchers. You get one guy like that in
2: your franchise over a 10 or 15 year run. That's a miracle to have three come up together and to be as great as they were. So one of the great trios in baseball history.
0: Now they've all been uh, been on toe of the slab. So pretty cool. As John Smoltz is going to join us in just a little bit. First, we're going to touch on Shohei Otani because the question kind of arises now, like which is his best pitch? We're going to be talking about that. uh, Dive in a little bit on some secondary pitches for him and just ask the question over the first two weeks of the season, who is like appointment viewing for you right now? It may not necessarily be a top of the end starting pitcher or a lights out reliever. Maybe it's a guy who has just caught fire, but right now two weeks in who's the guy that you're stopping and watching. We'll also get into some Yankees chatter as well. And like we said, talk with John Smoltz in between, but first, As we do each and every week, David starts us off with the opener. David, what is on your mind here this week?
1: Well, it's, you know, it's early, but there's still some impressions to be had. And so who's the surprises so far? And we'll stay on the team side of things, but you can't talk about surprises without mentioning the Tampa Bay race. I mean, they've run the table. It's just remarkable. And a lot of people are saying, "Well, look at the competition. You know, they got a soft part of the schedule. They got a good draw early. Well, you could put any of the power teams in that scheduling, and would they have run the table? And they're doing what they had to do. A, a quick ten spot. You know, you you talk about going plus ten. That usually takes a while for an organization. The steps you make." We're going to win a division. We got to get to plus uh, 30 games over 500 or 40 games over 500. They're already a plus 10. Just remarkable pitching. The Rays are for real and uh, they're gaining more confidence as we go. And then on the other side in the National League, the Diamondbacks. Very exciting young team to watch. A lot of athleticism. Corbin Carroll's a stud. He's he's just fun to watch play. They have tremendous team speed. They are well-situated with their youth and team speed to be able to take advantage of the new rules. So, yes, it's the Rays and the Diamondbacks early in the season. The Rays, not only
2: getting out to this hot start, they've been killing all the opposition. Granted, Tigers, Nationals, A's, you can only beat who you play. They won their first nine games by four or more runs every time. They're only the second team to do that. You guys remember uh, Buttercup Dickerson and the 1884 <laughs> St. Louis Maroons?
0: First pitcher I always think of. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Great name. <babe>. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, well, they had that, the 10 and O start now. And on the one hand, it's early. If this was a, a, a football season, we'd be in week one at the same time though, this is wins in the bank for Tampa Bay. If you're going into the season, say, Hey, we got to win 95 games. Well, you just started 10 and 0. So you really only have to play at a 90 or 91 win pace the rest of the way to hit that 95 mark. And now your chances of getting up to say hundred is, is even better.
0: Yeah, you only play who's on your schedule, but I think the fashion in which they're, they were just pounding these teams in the ground speaks more to what they've been able to accomplish in the first 10 games. They have a plus 58 run differential through 10 games. So they're scoring the most runs so far. They've given up the fewest runs This is obviously a huge lift for a team starting strong out of the game. And you remember, this was one of the questions that I had in spring training because they kind of had an altered spring training. They had to change their spring training site right before exhibition games were being played. They had a lot of individuals going off to the World Baseball Classic, not just with players. They had a lot of coaching personnel involved in the World Baseball Classic I was wondering what it would look like coming out to start the season for the Rays. And it uh, turns out it's the, the best start in about 35 years or so for a team. So, uh, so far, definitely must see action for the Rays. And for the D-backs, look, they take a series from the Dodgers. They throw their weight around. They are one of the teams that really fit the mold in terms of what organizations are able to do now with some of these new rules.
1: Roster construction is a big deal, and it's going to start in the minor leagues. I mean, we're seeing this. The Yankees in their minor league system you know, have emphasized the running game, so they've kind of been ahead of the curve a little bit with uh, tr- you know, base running coaches and speed coaches, and I think and once you get this in the pipeline, this is what you need on the big league level. We're going to need more speed, more athleticism. You're going to see that churning out more and more each and every year in the draft, draft and development in the pipeline. You're going to see it coming over the next five years.
0: All right, let's get to some topics here before we turn it over to uh, to John Smoltz. And we touched on this with John a little bit, being Shohei Otani. You know, it used to be pretty easy to say that Shohei Otani's splitter is his most outstanding pitch. It is lethal. It is disgusting. But I think where we are at now with how he's throwing some of his other pitches and the advent of the sweeper, I think it calls into question which pitch is actually Otani's best pitch right now, David? What do you feel is Otani's best pitch?
1: The one who struck out Mike Trout, his teammate, to, to, in the WBC and that great at bat. It's the sweeper. It has to be. It makes a left hand turn. The, the way I define really good sweeping sliders, you know, we we're calling it a sweeper now. It's a it's more of a horizontal, you know, vertical rather than vertical breaking slider um to me it's it's almost as if it stops it gives the illusion of stopping and then making a left-hand turn for from a right-handed pitcher he's got that and a lot of that has to do with the seam orientation you know we i've, I've talked on this where i threw sort of a two seam slider myself And people used to say that my slider used to kind of stop and make a left-hand turn. And, uh, you know, to me, I always wondered, you know, how I didn't have the analytics. I didn't have the high-speed cameras, but a lot of pitchers now are learning about using more of a two-seam orientation to get a seam-shifted wake effect, pitching theory, but certainly it's gaining momentum, you know, the more pitchers use it and Shohei Otani has figured out how to orient his seams to get that more horizontal break and that illusion of stopping and making a left-hand turn and running away from the barrel of the bat.
2: It's the sweeper uh, as much as I would like to, to, you know, mix things up Uh, it's a credit to him to already jump out as a, as a great pitcher in the big leagues and then still want to get better. The work he's done at driveline uh, the analytics that he's that he's been diving into he's raising his sweeper usage now uh, every step of the way and uh, just so far this season through his first two starts batters two for 20 with just two singles and seven strikeouts against that sweeper and uh, as great as, as great as his splitter is and you know an 097 batting average against his his splitter uh during his career but the sweeper has really uh, taken the world by storm.
0: He's throwing it harder than it. Like Otani's pitching in and of itself is cool. I mean, he's leading the charge with the the sweeper surge. The splitter is a pitch that obviously has made a comeback. He throws it better than anyone there. So Shohei Otani is literally like, if you give him something to do, he's going to do it with style. He's probably going to do it better. With anyone, And that's what we're seeing in real time here. So pay attention to Shohei Otani. And hey, this kind of leads into the next question we have. He's obviously appointment viewing whenever he's on the mound, but over the first two weeks of the season, who's another pitcher in your eyes who has become appointment viewing to start 2023?
1: Well, I'm going to take you down to Cincinnati. And it's really not just one guy, but if I have to say one guy, and maybe you haven't heard of him, but you need to watch Graham Ashcraft pitch. (laughs) He said he's up to a great start. And Nick Lodolo, for that matter, too, along with Hunter Green, those three are three number one type starters. Cincinnati is building a super rotation down there. It is something that needs to be seen. You need to watch it. You need to pay attention. Graham Ashcraft features a 96-mile-an-hour cutter, a 97-mile-an-hour sinker, and an 88-mile-an-hour slider, and certainly Nick, Nick Lodolo has a ninety mid-90s fastball and a good sweeper. He's got that sweeping curveball at a lower velocity that is just devastated on left-handed batters. He's deaf for left-handed batters right now, so you talk about those two guys. I don't know if you've seen a pitch. You need to. You need to see Nick Lodolo. You need to see Graham Ashcraft, and we've already talked about Hunter Green and all the he leads the world in fastballs over 100 miles an hour. So, and, he, and he's still kind of figuring it out as he goes. But those three starters in Cincinnati, watch out! Super rotation on the on the come right now.
2: Cincinnati probably will be you know lower down in the in the standings uh, this year, but the pitching is really eye opening, and it's a glimmer of hope. And you could say, hey, these are these are guys we can dream on to be the the anchors of a rotation on the next good Cincinnati Reds team. I'm going to be a little more cliche. I'm going to say Garrett Cole, considering the year he had last year and some of the narrative around him, can this ace, you know, bounce back and be back to being one of the best pitchers in baseball Uh, so far. So good. Only two starts, but uh, he's gone six plus innings on no, or one run allowed with eight plus K's in both. Uh, He's the only guy to do that so far. Shohei Otani could join him. They're pitching coming up uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. So Garrett Cole, so far so good. And I think he's going to be somebody we're really going to have to watch as we get into the meat of the season here.
0: And no home runs allowed so far. That's the biggest thing to watch with with Garrett Cole moving into the season. I'm going to kind of be cliche with you too, James, if if we're talking about a, a singular arm right now. And based on some of the other storylines surrounding the Mets starting rotation, I think my pick would be Max Scherzer just because he can be overpowering, dare I say dominant, but but also it's almost like you're you're waiting for his age to catch up to him in some way. So I think that's great theater, especially with the other storylines surrounding the Mets rotation with Verlander being out watching Senga uh, assimilate to major league baseball. Uh, Scherzer is my pick there, but, I'm just more bullish on everything that the Rays are doing as a team. So whether it obviously is the dominance of Shane McClanahan, whether it is Jeffrey Springs, Rasmussen, Eflin, even if it's plug and play like they did on Monday, where they they begin with an opener, everything that they're doing within the system is, is working so well and they keep overmatching opponents again, allow the fewest runs in baseball. So I just want to see what the race plan is each night out and odds are, I mean, obviously up to a 10 or no start, it's pretty much worked every time out. So I want to see how long it can keep going.
1: No, the, the team that invented the opener has a rotation, they yeah. have a really good rotation now. And then their fifth starter in waiting is on, on the way back when they get And they get that big right-hander that throws that hook over the top back, you know, from injury, uh, you know, that that's going to give them a really solid five starters. So yes. uh, You know, Tampa Bay, you know, they always said it, you know, uh, they said, you know, we, we use the opener because we have to, it it was personnel driven. We'd rather have a starting rotation. Well, they proved it. They have a starting rotation now.
0: All right. Let's get to this week's guest, uh, John Smoltz really no introduction needed hall of fame pitcher. One of the best to do it in his generation. And to think, I mean, he was just a piece of the pie in Atlanta for that many years, because you had two other hall of famers uh, pitching alongside John Smoltz. We've had Greg Maddox on, we've had Tom Glavin. Now this week here on Toe in the slab pitching with David Cohn, it is hall of famer, John Smoltz. John, thanks for joining us here on the show this week. And Correct me if I'm wrong. Did you recently join David Cohn in the hip replacement
3: club? I sure did. Um, and like everybody else, I'm sure. Uh, I wish I would have done it earlier. That's usually what you hear when you get the hip replacement done. But I need my right one done as well. I had my left done. about I'm, We're closing in on two months. And my right one is absolutely on fire. So it's it's kind of... I knew it going in, but I was hoping I could buy some time with the right one. So once I get the right one done, I'll be uh borderline bionic.
1: Oh, you'll be able to turn again on your swing. You'll get full rotation again.
3: <laughs> so That's exactly so
0: right. What like what percentage is John Smoltz gonna be at when he tees off in the uh in the invited celebrity classic next week in Texas?
3: Well, I'm gonna be a hundred percent competitive. That's, that's all I can do is <laughs> I'm the most most competitive guy in the world, but I'm probably not a hundred percent. And, and I'm, you know, where I'm at now, I'm, I'm playing a lot of golf, trying to get back to the timing and it's difficult, but, uh, I'll be okay. You know, I'll be in, uh, as soon as they, uh, as soon as we tee it up and they, they keep score and there's a leaderboard, I'll be on that leaderboard. I don't know if I'm good enough to win right now, but but I, uh, I definitely will be uh, competing um, at the highest level for sure, and and I'll have no excuses when it's over.
1: It, tell us about the tournament. What is it? What uh, what's going on?
3: The Invited Celebrity Classic is an opportunity in Dallas that we get a chance to play with the Champions Tour. So celebrity comes alongside the Champions Tour players. Um, that's a treat in itself. I've had an opportunity to play in some celebrity, uh, some Champions Tour events uh, before the hip surgery and they raise a ton of money uh, for charity for the kids in Dallas. And it's, it's a blast. It's, it's, it's where the greatest golfers in the world, over 50, uh, we get an entertain, we get an opportunity to mingle with the, 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 the likes of a lot of celebrities. And certainly there's a lot of, um, you know, that competition that we have left is for me is only golf. And so when, when I get there, it, it kind of, um, uh, it kind of makes up for missing the game of baseball and, and the game that you and I competed in a long time. So um, it's, it's not the same. I get nervous in golf. I never got nervous in, in baseball. And uh, I'm, trying to get, uh, I'm trying to stay away from those, uh, those shots that expose you really quickly in golf.
2: There's a ton of other big leaguers in there. Your old teammate and fellow Hall of Famer, Greg Maddox, John Lester, Mark Mulder. Derek Lowe, not just pitchers either, because you got Brian McCann and Pudge Rodriguez in there too, huh?
3: It's exactly right. Uh, Derek Lowe and, and Mark Mulder's the best of the baseball players. Um, Derek Lowe won a tournament uh, last year, so they hit it. They bomb it. They're still young enough. Brian McCann's coming on like that. He's probably going to be one of the best position player golfers uh, that in the field, so... You know, it's it's one of those things where everybody, once they get an opportunity to play, they go home in the off season. They work on their game. It's it's no different than anything else. We're all we all love the competition. At the end of the day, we don't want to embarrass ourselves, but we realize what this is for. And and uh, there's some bragging rights, and you know, talk some trash when you get a chance. But uh, for the most part, the range of uh, ages are. Uh, are pretty, uh, pretty significant now because the newer comers that have recently retired or haven't played their sports are a lot younger and they can bomb it.
0: All right. First two weeks of the season where the pitch clock is being implemented in games that, that matter here. What are the early results telling you about where the game's going with these new rules?
3: I absolutely love it. Uh, it was a long time coming. Um, The game, for a lot of reasons and motivation and reward, was rewarding guys to play a certain way, accumulate all the information. Uh, It just, by osmosis, guys started playing slower and the game was taking longer. And the pieces and the chess match and all the things that we love about the game um, took us in a data point. Like when you say the games take three hours and 40 minutes, That's not hating baseball. That's just saying that's the data of the game times taking longer. So baseball took a hard look, took some inventory of fans, and they've made a decision that is going to be one of the best things that ever happens to the game. And within another two weeks, you won't see any more violations, is my my opinion. It players, we all will adapt, whether the strike zone, strike zone changes or rule changes, or play at the plate, play at second base. We'll all adapt just want to know what it is and go out there and be the best player they can be. And so this is going to be great for the game action. It's going to put defenders back in positions to be athletes, and we're going to see more athleticism in the game. I believe.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I agree completely, John. Um, You know, the the new rules, I think kind of across the board have been accepted. You know, there's a little, there's a, there's a little moaning and groaning here and there for some of the older time players, but I think you're right. They will adjust moving forward i'm interested in your opinion this doesn't feel like the last of the changes coming we're seeing a a strike zone an automated strike zone in AAA this year for half the season and then sort of this hybrid system that i think is catching a lot of momentum to where you'd have a challenge system if you're a pitcher or a hitter where you could have two or three challenges per game and be able to challenge a call three two bases loaded pitch outside you could challenge that pitch change the collection of the game i was wondering your opinion on future strike zone? Are you an automated strike zone guy? Do you believe in the hybrid system? Nothing at all. You know, what's your position?
3: Yeah, I wouldn't mind the challenges, but I'm telling you the way the game has been um, the way the pitchers are and the way that they are velocity driven and spin driven. If we get to an automated strike zone hitting is going to get more impossible. If you got elite pitchers that can pitch to the top of the zone and spin a breaking ball to catch, you know, I, I don't, I would have to hear, does it touch the line? Does, does that qualify? A strike. I think that would be a mistake. I don't mind the challenges. I think that would be great. As long as, again, we don't suck the life out of the game and we keep the game moving. You know, as pitchers, I would have loved it. Oh my gosh, it would have been absolutely to know I had an automatic strike zone and a pitch to the top and bottom and the sides. I think what I'm in favor of, if we're going to go automatic automated strike zone, then lower the strike zone for me. It gives everybody a chance to compete. Hitters can't hit 98, 99 at the top of the zone, just can't. There's very few of them that can't. And we're teaching that velocity. So if you lower the strike zone, you give everybody a fighting chance, even with the velocity that exists today. And then hitters can get to a ball that's not a a good pitch. And pitchers can throw a ball to an area where a hitter can hit it and it's a push and pull. But I'm telling you, ever since I heard about the automatic strike zone, all my mind went to elite pitchers, top of the zone, breaking balls, And they're going to have their way with it. So I don't mind the challenges, but if we get to the automatic strike zone, if it doesn't come with a lower strike zone, I think it's a little bit of a mistake.
0: John, you, you've said something before that caught my attention. You were talking about the time of the game and how, if, you know, by saying a baseball game takes three hours and 40 minutes, so many people perceive that as man, that guy hates the game. No, like two things are, are, can be true at once. Like you could love baseball. You could also believe it was taking way too long with a, with a sub four hour game. I'm wondering, because I, I, first of all, I, I think it's great that, you know, you, you're not on Twitter. You don't see probably some of the comments. I'm sure people tell you about them, but there's like that section of, of young baseball fans. And that was a prime example who feel like, through your commentary, John Smoltz must hate baseball. Like, what would you say to some of those young fans?
3: Uh, they don't know what they're talking about. But, you know, when you speak to data points and you speak to, to uh, things that are just factual, um, I don't know how that is anything other than, than reciting the data that comes through it. When, when the game is played in its beauty, the game is awesome, Right. Um, What has happened is, I guess I would challenge those people to say, why do you think rule changes came into play? And if they can answer that question other than the the information and analytics has taken the game away from um, the crispness and action, the, the rules came into play because the action was starting to become less and less. So now you're seeing more and more action and you're seeing a crisper game. The athletes are fantastic. The athletes in today's game are only playing the way the game philosophically is being played or portrayed to them. So you can only do so much in a vacuum. But I don't, there's a reason I don't have any Twitter because it, <laughs> it is, it's a waste of time. And uh, those people who who claim that they, they have a lot of answers or no things, they've never played the game. And the game in itself, with the strategy that's employed, when every other sport, has made rule changes every other sport baseball's just been slow to make rule changes and they now I know people kind of want to hang on to that and you would think a guy of my era would be purist that would not embrace these rule changes i'm embracing them because i think they're great i think we're going to see the athleticism that exists in the game but when there's a shift you don't see that athleticism you see the shift you see a, a strategy that works when you now have I decided advantage because I have a shortstop and a second baseman that, that's better than yours. You're going to see that. You're going to see that defensive strategy become, now I've drafted that player. So I don't pay attention to that. Uh, when I do a game, I'm doing a game bringing the, the insights that most people wouldn't know because I played the game. And anybody who can can pull stuff out of a computer, there's value there. But they don't understand the insights. They don't understand the feel. They don't understand what goes on between the lines. And I think that's what I can bring. But all that other noise, I don't. I don't ever pay attention to it. And yeah, people try to tell me, and I say that's fine. Uh, unless my bosses think differently, I'm. I'm good with it.
2: Well, this is something that we can agree on. You. You said you're might be more of a purist and more of an old school guy. I'm a big stat head, and this is something that we might butt heads. Heads on. But as far as the pitch clock, the idea that it's some sort of seismic radical change to the game. I don't really buy it because it seems like it's actually bringing the game back more towards like when you guys pitched, when you would have instead of a game being 310, now it's back to 240 and it's not that, Oh, you want to have less baseball. It's the same amount of baseball. It's just in a tighter window with less standing around and, and, and mulling over the next pitch. and, And a lot of the delaying in the game is going out the window and it's a crisper, more of a throwback game.
3: No doubt. Um, But the reason it got to the point where it got a little slower is there was so much information that I believe guys were processing. Hitters were slowing the game down because they were trying to figure out what 3-2, 3-1, 2-0 trends, because there's so much documented information that's great for the player. It's natural that you're going to slow it down a little bit. And then, of course, the ability to make a bunch of pitching changes and the ability to interrupt the game with the rules that exist. That's why I think the information added or put the player in a slower position. Now you're forced to process the information, same information and kind of go at it in a little bit quicker way. We had a lot of the same information 20 years ago, but we didn't have the details and we didn't have the technology. And so all of that kind of, brought in the the forefront of, of, wow, the player has at his fingertips the ability to know a lot of information. And that just, I think, you know, slows the game down a little bit to the point where it becomes normal. And then when it becomes normal, I think that's when baseball said, okay, all right, we got to find a way to speed it back up. And I, and as I said in the beginning, you won't know a difference in two weeks. Guys will learn how to, how to process the information, not step out, not slow the game down and keep the game moving.
1: You, you know, John, I I wanted to touch on one more thing, and then a couple of questions about your personal history and your career too. Um, uh, you, you mentioned something about the strike zone. I I'm I'm right with you on the strike zone as far as what it was when in our era and the in the late '80s, early '90s, mid '90s, throughout the '90s. Uh, you know, we get a lot of we get a lot of crap. You know, from our era. You know, Mad, Mad Dog, uh, Glav. Uh, You know how much we got off the plate, right? The plate was East and West and we used to get a lot more off the plate in the 96 uh, World Series. I think they had the overhead camera on Fox for the first time. Actually, John Filippelli, who runs uh, the S network was the first one of the first ones to put the overhead cam and show how much far outside we were getting off the plate. Um, And and, uh, you hear the modern pitchers talk about that. Well, it was easier to pitch back then. You guys got so much margin off the plates, but we didn't get that high strike. It's sort of like the iPhone. Our iPhone was sideways, and the strike zone now is more like Jim Palmer back in the 60s, up and down north and south when they had the the bubble protector. The the home plate umpire had the bubble protector. So, you know, I'm curious. I think, you know, and, and I'm interested in the strike zone theory that you had there. I don't think I don't think people understand that the modern pitcher understands that we didn't get that high strike called at all. If the catcher moved his glove up at the mask, that was a ball in the 90s. I mean, there was no way yeah. we, those, those high breaking balls called.
3: Yeah, you, you know, even data-driven, the velocity has gone way up, right? So guys are learning how to throw the ball with more backspin, and they're learning how to spin the baseball. So hitting is harder. And the strike zone, being an advocate of a pitcher that can throw to the top of the zone, Not everybody can do it, but we don't have sinker ballers in the game either. So that ability to go east and west is not as important today as it was back then. And that velocity that that was generally an average in baseball 20 years ago didn't put hitters at such a disadvantage to be able to handle a strike or a ball in the middle of the zone. They actually hammered that. So when you think about the transition of the game, they're telling you now to stay off of that pitch because there's too much velocity get the ball down, and try to drive the ball, lift the ball that way. You can't lift the ball at the top of the zone. So if you look at all the home runs in baseball today, they're pretty much similar to 50 years ago. They're all mistakes. Very rare do you see a guy hit an absolute perfect pitch on the outside corner away for a home run. Can they do that now? Yes, they're stronger. But I think when you look at the average velocity in the game, then that's the next change as the strike zone comes if you're going to bring in the automated. And look, you're speaking to the choir. I got lopped in with Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin all those years about getting this far off the plate. I yeah. lived more in the strike zone because I could. Dave, David, you lived more in the strike zone because you could. But we also could pitch to the corners because that was a different time we were taught. Today, I'm just being honest. If I was in the game today, I would be forced to throw max velocity up in the zone because I could spin the breaking ball harder because I could, and that would translate to more strikeouts in theory. Um, and I would sacrifice location to get more stuff. So I get it. And, and there's some dynamic arms. My only caveat to that and my only selfish wish is I want to see guys pitch as long as they can. And I'm not so sure that max velocity and letting it all eat on the mound is, is a good criteria to seeing guys pitch as long as they can. That's just a selfish, I love watching pitchers. I love watching carving and hitter pitcher matchups. And I just see that the injury rate has skyrocketed as the velocity has skyrocketed. And the reason there's not much talk about it, in my opinion, is we have more arms to keep replacing the injured arms. And when those arms run out, then I think we'll do something about trying to prevent the amount of injuries that arms are, are getting. And, and that's just an opinion after watching the game, been retired all these years.
0: John, talking about pitch types in today's game, I mean, when you were playing, you had great secondary weapons with your slider, your splitter. I'm wondering, can John Smoltz give us his top three sliders in the game right now?
3: Oh, wow. Um Man, there are so many good ones. I I mean, there really are so many good ones. I mean, when you think – I don't even know what to call Jacob deGroms. I don't know if that's a cutter or a slider. It's so filthy at 94, 93 miles an hour. Um, You know, he obviously has – you know, back not too long ago – I know he's still pitching, but Corey Kluber had one of the best combination of breaking balls you've ever seen. He could break it east, west, north, south, and he had tremendous field for the baseball and his ability to break the plane, I call it top corner, bottom corner, cut it in, in, a, in a diagonal, was second to none. Uh, um, when I look around the league today and I, and I see the dynamics of, of just power arms and, you know, Justin Verlander can still break the planes in different ways. He can still create at, uh, what is he, 39 years old. Um, I'm sure I'm missing some obvious ones because, when you look at, at at breaking balls, I become numb to how good they are. I mean, because the way that they have the ability to shape them is is again that's a ben- beneficial opportunity players have with the technology exists today. Um, you you really can can I I've never seen a guy transform his career by reshaping a pitch just through the technology exists today. That that is a that's saving guys' careers. Um, I've been a big fan of um, the guys in Milwaukee, Woodruff and Burns and their ability to do what they do. But there's just so many um, now that, you know, again, I'm missing some obvious ones. Garrett Cole, of course, can spin a baseball as good as anybody, but the shape of it is so unique. David, David had four different breaking balls on one pitch. So, that doesn't exist as much. We're seeing guys do that, but I can make my breaking ball look like three different pitches. Now that's great if you can do it because if you can sweep it, if you can tighten it, if you can backdoor it, those are the kind of ways that you learn how to manipulate one pitch, and nobody better than what Coney could do at different release points. So um that that's that's kind of that's kind of where we are. We we're in an era where guys could definitely manipulate a baseball.
1: Yeah, you Darvish yeah. can spin it. You Darvish can spin oh, it yeah. pretty good yeah. too. Yeah.
3: Not enough fingers for you, Darvish. That's <laughs> yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah David, I think I think we're three for three with the uh, the Braves' big three praising your slider abilities now. So well, I think would- we've I'll tell you the one puzzle. thing.
3: I, I I tell you one thing. I, I'm I'm the one I'm leaving out the most is the one that I'm still I, my jaw drops every time we talk about, about him. Otani has one of the most wipeout sliders in split combinations. I mean, this guy. There's not enough words for him, and he's doing it part time so kudos to him yeah. and yeah. how he's been able to do that.
1: Yeah, he's highly motivated to be that guy. He wants to be that guy. And, you know, that I think that's the separator as far as, you know, you brought this up too, John, in terms of, uh, you know, how is he allowed to do this? Most organizations would frown on this. You can't do both. You have to, you know, it's going to take away. You're going to get hurt. Not him. He, he's driving the bus. He's like, either I'm doing this or I'm going to go somewhere who's, where, where they're going to let me do it. That's why the Angels signed him, because they let him create his own. He is on his own program, and he does what he wants yeah. when, when he wants. And that's the way it's going to be with Shohei Otani, because he wants this so badly. He wants to be the best player in the history of the game. You know, that that's how highly motivated he is.
3: No doubt. I wish I knew. uh, I wish we all knew what the contract was. But you got to believe the contract was something like this. This is what I get to do. This is why I'm going to sign here. And then I would think after a period of time, there would be an assessment to go, Okay, in in theory, probably both can't work. So we'll find out where he's best used and we'll just cherry pick that. Well, he is blown through every (laughs) stop sign of every expert that thought this cannot go six to eight years He's sacrificing one to to sacrifice the other. And my goodness, he has proven a lot of people wrong. And I never thought this was possible. And I I just, I'm in awe. I love watching him play.
2: What was it like working the WBC, him at the top of his game?
3: Yeah. So the fact that he was playing and the fact that we had a lot of stars in our lineup and just the fact that, I mean, golly, to have that Christmas gift in uh, March, February, to have, to have, him face trout you know at at the end of the game um he he definitely uh with his countrymen there's so much pride and there's so many stars now being developed over in japan that you're going to see this new wave um that their ability to pitch was phenomenal I, i i didn't see a lot of them before and when they everyone that came out was like oh my goodness this guy's major league ready and Otani in batting practice, this is what I've never seen live, because he doesn't take a lot of live batting practice, by the way. He was hitting baseballs over 520 feet in batting practice. So his power, the ball that comes off his bat, is every every single star was watching Otani take batting practice in Miami, hitting balls off the straightaway jumbotron, which I didn't think was possible.
1: Yeah, That is ridiculous! Ridiculous show of power, without a doubt. And uh, you know he is one of a kind. He's, he's no, we've never seen anybody like him. So uh, when he when he pitches, he's must watch. That's for sure. And you are must watch, Smolty. I just want to touch on your career real quick to kind of fill in some blanks before we let you go here. Um, you know, the, to me, I've always been fascinated with the switch to relieving. You know, after your elbow uh, surgery, your, your Tommy John. And then it's as it's, it's if you jumped right back to 200 innings, too. I know Seth Lugo's in San Diego this year trying to make the jump to the rotation. And Bob Melvin says, well, he's going to be on an innings limit. You know, we're not sure if we could just jump to 200 innings or 150 innings. You did it. And I was wondering, you know, not only, uh, you know, what that was like, but how you did that. I mean, coming off of those four great reliever years that you had to jump right back in the rotation and jump right to 230 innings. I mean, how, how did you do that?
3: Yeah. So I'll clean up a couple of myths because there's some myths around me that are unfair for future players that think that this transition can be X, Y, Z, right? Easy or not. I had 14 years of starting before I was kind of forced into the bullpen. It really wasn't my choice, but I wanted to stay in Atlanta. And the only way to stay in Atlanta was to become the closer. Okay. So I had to learn on the job. I learned quickly. I failed miserably early, but had success later in that year to the two that I would have never thought would be 55 saves but it's a trainable act now when you've done something for 14 years you have a basis for which to go back now after five years of really not starting people said this guy's crazy what is he doing I wanted to return back to starting I thought that it made our club better the argument was the chicken and and the egg well as a closer we never won a series so what's better better for the team? And that was the argument that went on. And I, I, I finally convinced my general manager, look, I've done this 14 years in a row. I can do it again. It's a trainable act. I know how to do it. The fallacy or the myth is when you take a young player and bounce him back and forth with no resume to go back on, that's a dangerous act in the big leagues. I know we do it quickly and we take a, a stud starter who maybe not and then we put him in the pen and then we bounce him around. He doesn't have his identity yet. So for me to throw out of the bullpen, the other myth is, okay, after Tommy John, your elbow's stronger and you throw harder. That's a myth. You are probably pitching with a compromised ligament long enough to where your velocity went down and you just returned back to your velocity. But the myth is out of the bullpen, I'm going to let it eat. I would never throw 98 as a starter. Could I throw 98? yes but it wasn't valuable for me at that time to go seven, eight, nine innings. So for me, it's a trainable thing, a mental thing, and I wasn't afraid to fail. If you combine those things together, more people can do them. It's similar to the Shohei Otani open that door now. Will we see more opportunities for two-way players? Possibly because of Shohei. We'll never see another Shohei Otani, but at least we'll embark in that that opportunity for players who have two-way abilities. So, I felt bad for a long time, honestly, when when people used my example as to a young player who got birthed in the big leagues. Oh, let's put him in the pen. Oh, no, then we won't put him in the pen. We'll put him back. That's a dangerous thing. You can lose a player. I, people forget I had 14 years of, clo- of starting before I, I went to the bullpen.
2: And you, even with a Hall of Fame career, it wasn't easy transitioning to relieving. You've said before that the most exhausted you felt after a season was after some of your relief seasons.
3: Yeah. I'm going to be honest. I mean, people ask me the question, what would I rather do? It's a no brainer. I'd start 100 times out of a hundred, but learning to close and learning to be a more impact on the year, I had to train differently, eat differently, think differently. Uh, that first year I saved 55 games and I uh, blew four saves. Do you know How many times I got interviewed? Four times. (laughs) They didn't interview me one time on a save that I got (laughs) successful. So it really is, you've got to have a, a, a mind that forgets. You have to be able to be in the moment and understand it's not all adrenaline, but the adrenaline rush is through the roof. It's nothing close to a starting. There's no adrenaline ever the same. And so I did have to learn. It was not in my personality. It was not something. I did it because I wanted to be in Atlanta. I wanted to win another championship. And that was the best route at that time. And when it became obvious that that wasn't going to work, then I got back to what I really loved. And I can I, I remember it like it was yesterday. Every so-called expert said, this guy's lost his mind. He can't pitch 200 innings. No one's ever done this. And I led that year's team in innings pitched by 20. And so I, I'm just within context. People have to understand the context. You can't just use that situation and go, well, that's what everybody can do. And I admit it. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in baseball. Because, yes, was, I was throwing a baseball. It's the same. But it's not the same. Even a position change in baseball is not the same. So you have to learn how to do it differently.
0: Only player in history with at least 200 career wins and 150 saves. John, thanks so much for the time here. We appreciate it. We'll uh, we'll catch up with you down the road and have the time of your life with uh, at least one half of your hip intact at the invited uh, celebrity classic <laughs> next week.
3: Yeah. Hey guys, I appreciate it, and uh, I'm gonna, I am going to have a time of my life. The fact that I can play again is pretty cool.
1: Very nice. Thanks again, Smolty got it we thank john for
0: coming on and david near the end he was talking about the transition the back and forth with the rotation and the bullpen and he kind of called himself like a poor example because teams follow that model like oh if someone can do it here like you know we could easily repeat this it's repeatability uh he, he reiterated why that doesn't work why do you think it's been so difficult for maybe some teams to see the forest through the trees and Remove themselves from that way of thinking
1: well i I just think there's so much more medical data now, and the teams are that you know that they've poured, they pour so much money into their training staff into the medical data part of analytics you know you've heard me say this there's so many subsets of analytics that when I want to hear somebody say the analytics i it just is a it's a clue to, that they don't understand analytics and how it works and all the different subsets so within the medical data part. The only thing they can chase in, in that area is try to protect guys from fatigue. We know that fatigue leads to injury. So, that overuse, that overusage that used to be prominent back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s is a thing of the past because that's the one area they can stop it. We have more pitchers on a roster than they used to have. We have more arms that, that multi mentioned. So, the, the days of a starting pitcher throwing 130 pitches are a thing of the past. Uh, extra rest extra maintenance that's just going to be it's going to be a different way of of going about it about how they're going to try to protect these guys so any comparisons to the past kind of gets lost in that shuffle it's irrelevant at this point because it's just not going to be allowed I threw 166 pitches one night at Shea Stadium in 1992 in a one to nothing shutout I was 3-2 on everybody I had 140 something after eight I'm okay I'm okay I'll go out I got it I got it that's just never going to happen again
0: it brings us to our next topic because there is a picture with the New York Yankees right now whom many people are wondering, bullpen, rotation, long-term, which best suits him? And as we, we start a Yankees discussion, we'll bring our fantastic producer, Dan Rourke, into the picture as well. Clark Schmidt has had a, a spotty start to his season for sure. There have been multiple injuries within this starting rotation. Fans, I think, are looking for a guy who was... Not perceived to be part of the big five to begin the season to step up here. Uh, Clark Schmidt's getting an opportunity to prove himself as a starter hasn't worked out so far. So, how long of a leash can Schmidt have as a starting pitcher in the Yankees rotation?
1: Well, he's going to have he's going to have more opportunity. Uh, You know, it's because the the replacements aren't quite ready yet. So you're going to get a couple more chances and they need him to succeed. So he's going to get every opportunity to succeed. But with that being said, he needs to find the right formula. You know, it's more to, there's more to it than just coming up with a cutter to get left-handed hitters out and learning when to use that and how to use it and not overuse it. And I think that's kind of been a problem early for, for Clark Schmidt, especially the second, or when he has been able to stay in the game long enough to get to the third time through the order, it's sort of, wait a minute. Now I've already shown them everything I have, And I keep throwing cutters, and it looks like the hitters are adjusting to that cutter, especially the left-handed batters, the second and third time up. So it comes down to location on his fastball. When in doubt, be able to spot your fastball, get it in a good location, whether it's down and away or up and in, and then being able to change speeds. Clark Schmidt's best pitch still is that high-spin curveball. That's always been his calling card. That's why he was a number one draft out of college, even though he had Tommy John surgery. He's got one of the highest spin rates on his curveball, and slider for that matter, but especially that that hard downer of a curveball. He needs to get in a position to use that to finish off hitters, to throw for a strike and then have a, have one that misses for a ball and use the cut fastball in the middle counts to be able to set up his best pitches.
2: He hasn't had trouble with the sweeper as far as you know results go, two for 11, six Ks, but it's about getting to that pitch, like you said, Coney, and look – we're not going to be able to make judgments about Clark Schmidt starting pitcher after one or two starts. It's not going to take four or five starts. This is, this is a longer term thing. The question is, when does Carlos Rodon get back? When does Luis Severino get back? Then you actually have some of these, these decisions that you have to make for now. He's one of the five starters. Just give him more rope as he's making this transition, going from relieving to starting is not easy. And it's as much as, a lot of us, myself included, might have liked him going into spring training and going into the season as someone who could take a leap and become an established starter. It's going to be a long process.
0: Dan, I want to know what you think here? Would, you, as, from a fan's perspective, how much, how much leash should he be given? I mean, I just the way I see it, we're going back within, I don't know, two weeks. I think he's the first guy to go to the bullpen. I mean, nothing really against him, but. You know, it's pretty obvious when he can only pitch successfully against one time through the order. Can't really still seem to get lefties out. With the way Brito's pitching, uh, I think he at least has the edge over him. And then you look at Schmidt versus Herman. who should go to the pen. I trust Clark more because we've seen it. So, like from uh, him pitch well out of the pen. So, I think that's the easy move. Uh, I just hope the Yankees make it. I'm not worried about Brito staying the rotation, I assume they're, I assume they're smart enough to keep him there.
2: And it might just be a matter of you know, similar to Michael King. You know, Clark Schmidt was good in the bullpen. So when other guys get back, maybe he's the first guy to go. It's simply because, hey, maybe he's too good to, of a reliever to try and, and go with this experiment. I do think, though, you exhaust the starter option because the fallback would be going into the bullpen.
0: Yeah, I think there's still some time for him to save himself from moving to the bullpen. It goes back to what David said there needs to be smarter pitching in certain counts and how he can uh, make better pitches in certain counts against uh, some hitters, most notably the, the lefties. But the case has been made. You, the, the thing that you do see is that most of the damage that Schmidt suffers from doesn't happen until he goes through the order the second time through, maybe the third time through. So yeah, I'd like to see him get a longer leash, try and prove himself and, and convince the Yankees that he could be that option in the rotation. But when you see the effectiveness, what, through a small slice of the order? It's pretty tempting. Once a, another pitcher like a Rodon, like a Severino, becomes healthy, it might be the easy move for the
1: Yankees. You know, Aaron Boone said something really interesting in, the, in his post-game conference about Clark Schmidt, and he said, there comes a time when you need to <clears throat> you need to stop chasing shape, stop chasing pitch design, and start making pitches. Start. Start hitting location. Concentrate on a good, well located fastball. Still works instead of the perfect shape on a cutter, or or the perfect pitch design or the perfect spin rate. You know that. Yeah, those are nice. I love it. But at some point, you got to get away from chasing those sorts of things and get back to pitching. And I I I thought that was spot on and really really interesting. Yeah. Another.
0: Aspect of this Yankees start again, uh, six and six and four. Now, after that first game in Cleveland and let me, let me be perfectly clear here, we're going to this topic because it's been among the hotter topics discussed for Yankee fans, this next one. And if this is a hot topic, things are going pretty well for the Yankees. Cause we're talking about outfield depth guys, uh, Harrison, Harrison Bader obviously still needs to return left field has been a hot button topic. You have Aaron Judge playing in center field. You have Oswaldo Cabrera getting most of the burn and left, but you have some names that came up in spring training who are now being relied upon in the lineup: the Franchi Corderos, the the Willie Calhouns, who who were who was called up and he yet to play, a get start a game of the outfield, but he's going to be there. So I'm wondering, obviously IKF as well in center field. But what are the Yankees telling us by who they're employing in the outfield these days?
1: What they're telling us is that they are chasing more balance, <clears throat> excuse me, and the balance they're looking for is left-handed pop. So really, that's what it comes down to, and that's why Franchi Cordero's here because of his, his tremendous upside in terms of exit velocity and his ability to hit left-handed and actually athletically run a little bit. But but he's there for the pop in his left-handed bat. That's what they need. That's another reason why Willie Calhoun is up here now, because of his left-handed bat and provide a good left-handed bat to balance out the right-handed nature of the Yankees lineup that's been that way for years, that's been criticized for years too by us at at various times as well. Um, I just know from a pitching standpoint, to be able to bounce back and forth between righty and lefty is problematic for me. If if you give me a, a series of right-handed batters, whether it's Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, or Jose Conseco and Mark McGuire, uh, you know, I'm gonna get into a groove. I'm gonna get my slider into a location I needed to be in and and I'm gonna lock that in and not have to deviate from it. So the ability to bounce back and forth matters. I don't know how you quantify it, you know, in terms of the numbers, but I just know mentally and emotionally it mattered to me. So that's what they need. And I think that also shows that they don't value. Aaron Hicks from the left side as much as they used to. Now he may get another shot, but I really think it's the fall off from his left-handed side of his swing. He's a natural righty. He he actually almost gave up switch hitting at one point in his career, you know, from the left side. So I I think that's what this comes down to is that they feel like Oswaldo Cabrera, Franchi Cordero, and now Willie Calhoun, for that matter, are going to get those left-handed at-bats over Aaron Hicks's left-handed stroke. And you, you noticed the other day, Aaron Hicks got that base hit batting right-handed. I think they still probably have some value on the right-handed side for Aaron Hicks. And uh, he's still going to get chances. Aaron Hicks is still going to have a chance to play and get it all back. But at this point, he's kind of down the backing order in terms of his left-handed stroke.
2: I think it's been pretty stable. Judge has been the primary center fielder. Oswaldo Cabrera has been getting most of the starts in left. Stanton has been getting time either at right or DH. And then if he's DHing, Francie Cordero's getting some run. But I was struck by um, the Talking Yanks guys. They, they're getting ready for their uh, Aaron Boone interview, and they tweeted out um, on Monday night, what would you like us to ask Aaron Boone about? And so many of the replies that I checked out were along the lines of, why are you burying Oswaldo Cabrera? Why are you changing the lineup all around? And in the first 10 games of the season, Oswaldo Cabrera started seven, and he was off in the first game against Cleveland. But assuming he's back in the lineup uh, on Tuesday night, that's eight starts in 11 games, which is on pace to start over 120, over 162 if you keep stretching that out further and further. So I think it's been pretty stable in the outfield. And I think that whether you go Cabrera, Judge Stanton, or Cabrera, Judge, Cordero with Stanton at DH, or you can rotate guys around. But otherwise, I think it's pretty stable. And just as far as the team as a whole, Judge started all the first 10 games, as did Torres and Volpe. Rizzo and Stanton started nine. LeMayhew started eight. Cabrera and Trevino, seven. Trevino, seven. So that's eight players right there that have gotten seven starts in 10 games. It's a pretty stable lineup.
0: Yeah. I think you, you need to maintain that stability with Cabrera playing as consistently as he has. And at this point, Ride whatever impact that Frenchy Cordero can can give you. I think you owe it to the team to to ride that out because he could. I, I hate sounding this cliche, but he could become this year's hidden gem. He could be that Matt Carpenter type. And I again, I I can't stand those like when you do those comparisons. Like who's going to be the unsung hero this year? There may not be a guy each and every year, but at this moment, based on what he's shown you so far, keep riding that out. Figure out what you have with with Frenchy Cordero. All right, guys, that's gonna it out for this week's episode. David, where are you at this weekend on Sunday Night Baseball?
1: Oh, we're going to Houston. Down to Houston. Uh, it's going to be the Battle of Texas. And we're hoping we're going to get Jacob DeGrom on Sunday night. We're not sure, but it's the Rangers and the Astros, and uh, baseball's big in Texas this year. Very nice. Kony will have it on ESPN. We'll
2: have I'll be on K-Rod with uh, Michael and Alex over on, on the Deuce. So another K-Rod show go, along with Kony's broadcast so we got astros rangers a little uh, a lot of astros and rangers and phillies on the er, on the april slate for sunday night baseball
0: That just means a lot of Texas brisket for both of you. So uh, report back. Let me know how that stuff is. Uh, Big thanks to John Smoltz for joining us this week. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you do not miss anything that we have streaming each and every week. For David Cohn, for James Smythe, for our outstanding producer, Dan Work, this is Justin Shackle. We will talk to you next week on Tone the Slab, pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media.